Quiet in the studio, please. Cue Norman B. Roll intro. Cue theme music. Three, two, one. This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. David Bowie. The silence that you're hearing after me say that is because um, I'm still I'm still stunned. I'm still um, trying to formulate the words um, to, to, to make sense of how we put this together. It was just a couple of days ago that I was on the telephone with. Chris O'Leary, the author of Rebel Rebel, the book about David Bowie's songs, and Chris and I were doing a, I guess you would call a critique of David's latest album, his 25th studio album, Black Star. And we talked about what this album meant, we talked about the songs, and what well, Chris is standing by, and Chris, uh, this is such a, uh, a sad, sad occasion. Um, here we were just a couple of days ago on David Bowie's birthday uh, talking about, about him and about his latest album. And you said, um, in answer to my question, which we're going to hear, we're going to replay it in a, in a few moments, um, about the question of whether he had been ill or not. And I don't want you to just sort of go back and just remember exactly what you said, but if you can just just generally just reiterate a little bit of what you said and, and as a, in, in our previous interview. Yeah, I mean, you, you had mentioned that there were rumors he was ill, and I, I didn't think it was true because there had been rumors when he wasn't recording that that decade um that he was that he was very ill and you know and it didn't seem to be the case maybe i we don't know the details possibly he had uh something that happened that was went into remission then it came back after he started recording again i don't know what i, I don't want to speculate but at the time yeah i just i assumed he he looked pretty healthy he looked thin but he always has been a thin guy and it's I just assumed he would keep making records. Um, it seemed that he had a good system in place. He had friends and studios that were very, very close to his home in New York. He wasn't touring. He was just um, seemed to be kind of in this niche where he could do whatever he wanted, make videos, write plays, put out albums, and not really have to exhaust himself. And I thought it would be a way he would be producing stuff for another possibly 10 to 15 years until like his voice no longer could 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 really uh, hit the notes anymore yeah let's um yeah. let's play that interview that we did on january the 8th of 2016 unedited unabridged i, I think it's important that we play it in its entirety 
because at the time, we didn't know. And here we are, three days later. And I just want everybody to, 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 to grasp what this means to, uh, to you, uh, to me, and to, the, and to the legions of David Bowie fans. Here's our interview from January the 8th, 2016. And this is me talking to Mr. Chris O'Leary about Black Star. David Bowie, Black Star, the title track from his brand new album. This is his 25th studio album, released on his 69th birthday. And who better to talk about Bowie and Bowie's songs than the man that's written the definitive first volume of Bowie's songs called Rebel Rebel, Mr. Chris O'Leary. Chris, welcome back to Life Elsewhere. Uh, thanks for having me back, Norman. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. So there we are, playing in the background, Black Star from David yeah. Bowie, the brand new album. This track is, what, 10 minutes long? Yeah, I don't know whether it's officially the longest studio track he ever released, but it's up there. The only comparison would be the title, The Station to Station, I believe. Yeah. But he's he's always been relatively concise. Yes. Uh, lengthwise. So let's get into it, Chris. Black Star. There's a lot of buzz about this album. He's, uh, he hasn't uh, been in the public for an awful long time. We're going to get to that in a little while, talking about yeah. that. This is an album which a lot of people have been anticipating. There's, as I said, a lot of buzz around it. And yeah. it's been, I think, talked about in every paper, every website I've gone to has been talking about it. You're the man that's written the book about every Bowie song. Let's let's hear what you have to say. Let's get of an overview first of all from Chris O'Leary, author of Rebel Rebel, of Black Star. It's the first thing that anyone ever heard from this album. It was kind of released in now Bowie's typical way of no warning, just kind of bang. Here's my new song. Here's a video. That's kind of the way he operates now. So it was a couple months ago, and the reaction was almost universal uh, praise. I mean, even people who were not, you know, crazy about Bowie's comeback record in 2013 or thought it was okay, um, it seemed to be just a sort of like, wow, he's he's really done it. This is a pretty ambitious song, and everybody was taken by the different uh, pieces of it and how it kind of shifted and changed. According to, I believe, Tony Visconti, it was uh, two songs kind of joined together uh, in classic Bowie fashion that, like... Um, Station to Station again, and Signet Committee, that a song he wrote many years ago. Yeah. So here we are with Black Star. Uh, it's got some long songs on it. Um, and I think some of the... I, I went through some of the websites and some of the uh, magazines um, discussing the album, and these are some of the, the sort of phrases that some of the critics already have said. Prog rock, jazzy, <laughs> avant-garde. Chris O'Leary, author of Rebel Rebel, is that a fair assessment? Prog rock, jazzy, avant-garde? Um, prog rock, in a way, uh, but avant-garde. I would say it's it's a challenging album, but it's not it's not like metal machine music. If you remember, yes, lead record from the seventies. It's not crazy electronic noise. It's not discordant by any means. It's uh, it's a pretty not conventional, but it's not something that, you know, you're going to put it on and, and your next of kin is going to be like, what, what is this racket? It, it's a pretty, it's a pretty straightforward, you know, 
the harmonic and, and melodic record. It's nothing that's going to just make you wince or anything. And he's done he's done more, I think, more avant-garde stuff in the past. Uh, the Outside album from the mid '90s oh, yeah. has, has, some, has some more kind of challenging and, and harder stuff to to take. I think I'm right in saying this, Chris, and correct me if I if I'm not. But in in true Bowie fashion, he hasn't commented on the album at all. He's left it up to Tony Visconti, uh, some of the musicians yeah. involved. And so everybody's making their own mind up of what it's all about. Um, your thoughts on that? Um, it's it's pretty brilliant. It seems now that this is a very much a deliberate strategy, which goes back to um, again everything with Bowie goes back quite a ways, and this goes back to his fascination with Andy Warhol um, and his being kind of taken by the fact that Warhol would sometimes have people play him. Uh, have other actors or other people answer phone calls from the press and say, yeah, yeah, that, that's what the you know, painting is about. And it wasn't him at all. And the way Bowie has kind of outsourced his public image to a number of people, uh, musically, it, Tony Visconti, and, and for this record, um, Donnie McCaslin, the, the leader of the jazz group who is the primary musical force on the record. And um, performance-wise, it's Michael C. Hall, the actor who's playing the lead character in the Lazarus play. Mm. And mm. so it's kind of like he is... Uh, there, was a, there was a wonderful article by um, a writer named Sasha Geffen that came out a couple of days ago, which is made the great good point that Bowie is almost preparing the stage for when he's no longer here. He's kind of creating <laughs> the legacy of David Bowie as while he's you know still an active artist. Let me stop you there, Chris, because there has been, and, I, and I, again, I think I'm writing saying this, that there has been some speculation that one of the reasons why we haven't heard from Bowie for quite some time is that he's not well, that he's, he's ill, and that he's dying. Your thoughts? Um, I don't think that's the case. I, I mean, it's hopefully I, I won't be disproven that, but he, from photographs he seems very spry and uh he's doing dance moves in his videos and i think he kind of got a kick on these these the rumors were especially strong when he before he came back probably the early part of the of this current decade that he was dying that he was uh, unwell and i think he kind of got a kick almost out of that howard hughes like rumor and maybe even fed it a little bit i don't know yes we're talking to chris o'leary he is the author of a terrific book it's called rebel rebel uh, this is the definitive book on Bowie's songs. It's volume one. I want to continue on uh, talking about Bowie's new album. It's Black Star. And we're going to hear another track right after this. You're listening to my dad, Norman B. in Life Elsewhere. Okay, this time, try it a little faster. You're listening to my dad and Norman B. in Life Elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> If you're just joining us, my guest is Chris O'Leary. He is the author of Rebel Rebel. This is the definitive book on David Bowie's songs. And Chris is joining us to talk about David Bowie's brand new album. It's called Black Star. Chris, let's take a listen to a track called Tis a Pity She Was a Whore. Yeah. 
David Bowie, "Tis a Pity She Was a Whore, from the brand new album, Black Star. Chris, tell me about this one. I, I've got some thoughts, I've got some ideas, but I want to hear it from you. Well, it was originally, um, it came out last, no, in 2014. It came out as the B-side of, uh, of Sue, which again, which is also on the new album. Uh, in both cases, he, it's re- remakes of this single. And the, the original, "Tis Pity, was called a demo, and everyone thought it was maybe just a sort of affectation, but it turned out it literally was a demo he made in his house. Mm. Uh, I think just him. And this is kind of a, a much a much more kind of muscular kind of uh, reworking of it using you know, the McCaslin Quartet. And um, the name is from a, a play I think I might have read in college. Maybe not. It's, it's John Ford. It's a sort of post-Shakespeare uh, revenge tragedy, I believe. The the song itself, I'm listening to it and I'm wondering whether whether it's tongue in cheek or or whether this is because I I'm I'm maybe I'm hearing things that are not actually there. Uh, <laughs> again, this is kind of typical of Bowie. You, yeah. you sort of he leads you in different directions. Again, let me put it back to you. What are you hearing with this one? It just seems to me like he is just having fun with language in some ways on this on this album. Uh, more so, especially in another song. Yeah. Uh, Later on, yeah, uh, but it's sort of like it's. He, he, he did some interview at some point in which he kind of said that his lyrics are meant to be, obviously not being literally taken, but meant to be very kind of suggestive. That you kind of hear, you hear his lines, and maybe it doesn't make sense. Maybe it's, it's sort of bizarre, but you kind of take it and you you fashion your own interpretation of it. And mm-hmm. I think that that's the case in this case in in this song as well. It's it's a pretty kind of all-over-the-place lyric that's got some violent imagery and, and so forth. Now, you, you mentioned about another song, and I think we should play a, a, a little sample of, of this other one that you mentioned about uh, yeah. words. And, of course, there is a word in the song that uh, my engineer has very carefully um, yeah. edited for us. Um, can you just give us, before we play it, can you just give us a little... Tell my audience what we're talking about here. The girl, girl's like, Girl Loves Me? Yes, indeed. Yeah, <laughs> yes. and um, that's the one where it's he's using a bunch of strange um, slangs together. Uh, he's using uh, "natsat," which is the Anthony Burgess um, sort of fake Russian English for "clockwork orange." Some of those are in there, and also a slang uh, "polari," which yes. is a British thing, which I don't know much about. But I guess it's sort of a an East End kind of. Uh, well, from my understanding, Polari, um, for those uh, train spotters out there, Polari is, yeah. is a, was used in the, uh, the middle of the last century, predominantly. Um, it was a, a basically sort of gay speak in London. And it also yeah. comes from, uh, if you trace it back, uh, the TV comedian and actor Kenneth Williams. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but train spotters will be. Um, <laughs> had he came up with the name Polari, um, and I, I will put some links up on our website about that. Yeah. Oh, sound so titty up this Party up moods, Nanti Vela set round on Tuesday. 
dizzy snacks making all the homies mad Thursday Football blind to the poly in the hole by Friday When the fuck did Monday go? I'm going to this big and fun show I'm sitting in the chestnut tree David Bowie, She Loves Me, from the new album Black Star. We're talking to Chris O'Leary right here at Life Elsewhere. Chris is the author of Rebel Rebel, the book about David Bowie's songs. This is volume one. So here we are talking about this brand new album. I'm thinking that a lot of people that are David Bowie fans um, may be a little confused by it, Chris. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's possible. I mean, it's structured in a way, in a very curious way. Sequence twice. If you listen to it start to finish, mm. it opens with the real, the the real kind of adventurous, difficult quote songs, and it ends almost conventionally. It ends with a very pretty song, mm-hmm. uh, standard, uh, very lovely Bowie uh, ballad. So it's kind of like the reward after if you can get through <clears throat> the opening ten minute sort of thing, and then some of the the, gr- the more aggressive tracks like Sue. Um, you got, you kind of come down to a soft landing, so maybe start backwards. If, mm. yeah, that's a good. That's a good point. There are parts of the album, and I hope that our listeners are going to pick up on this. There's parts of the album that I hear references back to other Bowie albums um, in in okay. different different periods. His voice in in a couple of tracks to me seems so remarkably strong. There is a one point, and I'm for the life of me can't remember which one it is right now. Maybe we'll get to it, where yeah. he holds a note for goodness knows how long, and it just sounds so incredibly good. One other aspect of this album, Chris, that I'd like to to discuss yeah. with you is the production. Bowie has always been known for his production technique. Any thoughts on that? Um, in terms of like the the vocals, it's interesting in, in that um, I think one thing that people don't pay enough attention to um, in his in his work is the complexity of the vocal arrangements. He's always been incredibly talented at that, and even as far back as um, the Lou Reed record he produced, Transformer, all the little touches and things like Satellite of Love, the bum, 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 that's mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. He's always had this very, very um, e- great ear for kind of what exactly needs to be done. And for a while, um, for the last, like the most recent, re- uh, the next day, and then some of the records of the early 2000s, pre-retirement, um, he used a lot of female singers. He would use his bassist, Gail Dorsey, and um, some other singers. And now he's back to doing pretty much everything himself, I believe. Maybe Visconti sings a line here or there, but all of his, it's all you know him sculpting his own voice and deploying it. Um, and that makes, that makes for very interesting, because he's one of the best in the business at doing that. His voice, I think, has matured. It, it, it's, it, it's still very distinctive Bowie. And, and I remember yeah. 
when you and I first spoke, when we did an interview about your book, Rebel Rebel, you made mention of, but perhaps it was me, made mention about Anthony Newley, the late Anthony yeah. Newley, about how Bowie seemed to be using a lot of the phrasing and a lot of the sound of Anthony Newley. And I think he still has that, but he still now, I feel, has come after all this time, here he is at 69 years old, come into yeah. his own. It's it's very spe- yeah. very specifically Bowie. I don't see references anymore apart from Bowie. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, very much. Um, and the one influence that sort of you can feel in this record, uh, as you can feel in a lot of Bowie records, is his great sort of artistic love, I think, of, of his life, which is Scott Walker. Uh, yes. Yes. The singer Scott Walker. Um, and you can hear that in Black Star, the title track. It's very much a sort of late Walker Brothers. When there's a record called The Electrician, the yes, late 70s, has that similar structure to it. Uh, ominous opening, and suddenly a very beautiful romantic um, middle section, and then back to the ominous. I think there's another one that we can talk about that fits into that, and uh, that is Sue. And in parentheses, yeah. or in a season of crime. This is Bowie from Blackstar. title of this track is Sue, or In a Season of Crime. When I first listened to this one, I made some notes and I wrote down operatic, and I also wrote down Scott Walker. Your thoughts, Chris? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much <laughs> sums it up, of uh, operatic Scott Walker. Um, it, the original version of it, the, the single that came out um, in 2014 was with, I believe I have her name right, Maria Schneider. Maria Schneider, yes. Yeah, um, and it was a much more of a sort of a, a a pure, I guess it's the closest he came to actual jazz singing I've heard in a while. It's, it was just kind of him riding the rapids of this very, very aggressive and, and very intricate um, full jazz orchestra. And it's a little different this time around, so maybe a little rockier. It's maybe more uh, um, compact, um, you know, arrangement-wise. Now, I think I read, and again, you may be able to correct me again, is that Sue is Swahili for Iman. Is that right? Or am I just... No, I, don't, I, I haven't heard that. I mean, I'm sure it could be. <laughs> <laughs> I might, I maybe I imagine that. Yeah. Chris O'Leary is our guest, the author of Rebel Rebel, the definitive book on Bowie's songs. We're talking about Black Star, David Bowie's brand new album. Lazarus is track number three on the album. It's also the title of the play on Broadway. Can you talk about Lazarus, Chris? In the play, um, it is the opening number. It's sung by Michael Hall, who's playing the character uh, Thomas Newton, who Bowie played in the movie uh, Man Who Fell to Earth. Yeah. And it's sung sort of, his character is, is, is kind of drunk, and he's an alien who's stuck on Earth, and he's stuck in his high-rise apartment, and is drunk all the time, and is miserable, and this is sort of you know, look at me. And, and 
Bowie sings it much differently. Um, Bowie sings it with a little more kind of odd menace to it. He's playing again with the idea of, of Lazarus, the biblical figure, but it's sort of a play on, you know, Bowie coming back himself. This yeah. theme seems to keep permeating throughout uh, this album, doesn't it? Even the title. Any thoughts about the title, Black Star? There's all sorts of speculation. I mean, on my website, when I, I kind of gave a commenter is just an open thread to, to talk about the, that song when it came out, and the interpretations really got pretty heady very quickly. Um, mm. I think one of the musicians told a reporter that Bowie mentioned it was about ISIS, uh-huh. and that set off all sorts of speculation of, is he talking about ISIS? Is he talking about the Middle East in some way? Um, and there's even a rather crackpot um, YouTube out there, I believe you can find it pretty easily, I imagine, which is, you know, there's like the classic thing, there's backward messages. It's like a, a hymn to Satan or some kind of thing. Right. Clues, all sorts of clues you can find if you're listening to it reversed three times or something. But also the, the astronomical meaning of, of Black Star. I mean, it's obviously he's, he's using these very uh, resonant kind of images and not, and just letting you kind of wonder what he's getting at. Um, the video also offers one sort of interpretation, which is like a another world um, possible reference to Major Tom, like the you know the skull of Major Tom, mm-hmm. possibly in there. <laughs> so we're talking to Chris O'Leary about uh, David Bowie's brand new album, Black Star, Dollar Days. Let's talk about that track right after we hear a sample of it. from David Bowie. The album is called Black Star. It's his 25th studio album and we're discussing the album with Chris O'Leary, author of Rebel Rebel, a book that defines all of David Bowie's songs for from, what's the period for Rebel Rebel, Chris? It's uh, the first singles which is 64 through Station to Station. So let's talk about Dollar Days, your thoughts. It's very lovely. It's um, it's again as I was describing the trajectory of the album. It, there, it's kind of the first of the sort of calm, restive songs that come after all the tumultuous ones. And some people have even compared it to uh, the Smiths, or something. it has a kind of that ah. to it, um, a bit of a, a wistful, slightly dated quality to the guitar work. 
Chris O'Leary is our guest. Yeah. We're talking about Black Star, David Bowie's latest album. I want to play the the track that I like the most. Uh, we're going to do that right after this. Thank you for listening to Life Elsewhere. You can learn more about our show and our guests by going to lifeelsewhere.co and make sure you visit our back page where you'll find lots of arts, culture, and media links. Our address again, lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. Thank you for joining us for Life Elsewhere. We're talking to Chris O'Leary, the author of Rebel Rebel. We're talking about David Bowie's brand new album. It's called Black Star. My favorite track so far, and uh, you don't have to take my word for it, is I Can't Give Everything Away. It's intriguing, this track, um, in, in many, many ways. Your thoughts on this one, Chris? Yeah, it's, it's I mean, Bowie always, once in a while, he'll, he'll, arrange the album so that the last song is meant to be sort of a climactic statement, or sometimes it's a sneak preview of what's going to come. Uh, an example of the latter being um, the last song on Heroes, the album, The Secret Life of Arabia, which kind of comes out of nowhere, and it's very kind of funky and weird compared to the rest of the the album, and that turns out to be sort of a sneak preview of this is what Lodger, the next album. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is more in this, in this vein of... Um, Bring Me the Disco King, the last song on reality, the album, and almost rock and roll suicide in a way. It's kind of like a, a big statement. It's, um, again, the title, it's Bowie playing with, obviously, you know, any kind of time he uses the personal pronoun, people are, you know, assuming it's his own statement about something. And so I can't get everything, give everything away is very much like, what does he mean? Like, you know, do you, um, you know, um, this is my last album. I don't know, but like, how much more do you want from me? Yeah, you know, that sort of thing. You know, yeah. something that, or, that makes me think when I listen to this particular track. In fact, yeah. when I listen to the whole album, the whole Black Star album, is I wonder what else did he record? What else is in the studio? What else went on? What What are we not hearing? Yeah, I mean, I've heard rumors that there were other songs recorded. It's you know, for, by his standard, seven songs, even though they're long. 
is very short, and so I would not be shocked if there was a, like he did with the last album, a re-release with with new stuff on it, or maybe like an EP or something next year. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if more of songs from the sessions trickle out in some way. I want to touch on something as we wrap this up now. It's age. Here is David Bowie at the age of 69. Is that important? Does that matter? Has age now become something which is immaterial when you're putting out work of this, I guess, of this quality? He's obviously, especially in the videos, he is playing with the idea of old David Bowie. Um, He's kind of accepting and having fun with the idea that he's kind of a a shifty, strange old guy now. Kind of sometimes in his photos, he's playing up the fact that he's a little little shabby uh, in, in, in the videos. I can see him doing this for quite some time to come because he's removed the touring element of it. So basically all he has to do is write songs in his home and then some, in some cases quite literally go a few blocks away and record them. And that's all he really has to do. Yeah. It's a pretty comfortable way to, to keep working. I, I would not be shocked if he could keep this up you know, for another 10 to 15 years if he wanted to. You just heard my interview with Chris O'Leary, author of Rebel Rebel, the definitive book on David Bowie's songs. We recorded that interview on January the 8th, David Bowie's birthday. When we recorded that interview, we, as you hear, we, we were very much under the impression that David was alive and well. Well, he was alive, but he wasn't well. Now we have the news, just came in in the early hours of uh, this morning. Talk to me about uh, just your first impressions when you got the news. Well, it was, I, I think as you, my phone was on my dresser, and I was woken up by the fact it just kept buzzing constantly, and to the point where I was slightly worried it was a personal, you know, some kind of situation. Mm. And I saw, like, the first news, you know, reports on Twitter, I think it was, or something, and... You know, there's there's like a thing where it's a strange thing where suddenly there's a hoax, there's like a rumor of a famous person dying that gets bandied around the internet until it's finally disproven maybe a couple hours later. And I thought for a moment that's what it was. And then I started seeing legitimate sources, the BBC and Tony Visconti's statement on Facebook. And it, it just seemed uh, incomprehensible. And I basically got up around 4.20 in the morning and I put up a, a post on my blog to let fans talk and commemorate him. And I've been up ever since, and it's just been a strange morning. Is there a way that we can quantify David Bowie's legacy? It's hard right now. Um, I think there's going to be a, a huge resurgence in the next couple of weeks and months, I imagine, as uh, people rediscover his music, maybe another generation um, learns who he is and starts exploring. Um, it's much easier to do that now. I think as time goes on, I think his, his body of work will be more and more considered a whole. And of course, there's like there's down periods and there's albums which even he kind of rubbished in the press, especially from the 80s. I, I think people will look back and, and be like, wow, I mean, what a substantive, astonishing body of work he did. Not just the songs, but just the uh, the tours, the the images, um, and the play even. Uh, the play, which I saw... This um, is Lazarus. Um, it now has a much different meaning. It's It struck me as a very interesting and strange work that was that was kind of like Bowie playing with his obs- 
obsessions and, and interests. It now seems incredibly much like a, a, a piece written by someone who knew he was dying. And the heart of the play, in part, is a dying man, which is the Michael C. Hall character, um, trying to comfort and deal with a teenage girl, um, roughly the same age as, as Bowie's uh, child. And that really hit home how he was probably working through a lot of incredibly difficult emotions. We're talking to Chris O'Leary. Chris wrote the book Rebel, Rebel. This is the definitive book on Bowie's songs. Bowie died Sunday, January the 10th. Chris and I did an interview on January the 8th about David Bowie's new album, Black Star. At the time, we had no idea that David was a couple of days away from dying. I want to go back, Chris, and just do a little remembrance of some of David Bowie's music. And we're going to get to that right after this. You are listening to Life Elsewhere with Norman B. If you're just joining us, my guest is Chris O'Leary. He's the author of Rebel Rebel, the book about David Bowie's songs. Chris, you... Your book goes goes in such great depth about the songs of David Bowie. You you talk about them in in sort of finite detail. For you, the person that studied David Bowie, who's gone into such incredible uh, research, talk to me about the early work of David Bowie, the the the, the very very beginning. Yeah, like the apprentice work, you could call it, um, from the 60s. Um, it's interesting that, you know, for a lot of people of his generation, say the Kinks or the Beatles or the Stones even, they there's a pretty sharp, you know, high trajectory. Like they maybe have a couple of amateurish-sounding recordings, and then suddenly they're, they have hits, and they're huge, and they start, you know, grinding out these pretty colossal records pretty early. It doesn't really happen to Bowie. He takes a very long time to discover, A, how to you know write a song and, and how to kind of present himself. He realized early on that he didn't want to be in a band, which was sort of like the, the, the way what you did back in 64 or 65, you got to have a band. He went through a few phases, mod and folk, and this kind of bizarre, not quite psychedelic period, but a very bizarre period for, for Durham Records in, in 67. And even sort of heavy metal with the Man Who Sold the World album. But I think the breakthrough is um, the songs he wrote for Hunky Dory, which was late 1970 to early 71, which is kind of when all these amazing songs kind of come out of him. And it feels like that is the cumulative effect of almost a decade's worth of public songwriting and failure in a way. He His record's always stiffed, um, with the exception of Space Oddity, which was not didn't have like a, a follow-up single at all. It was kind of basically a one-hit wonder uh, tied to the moon landing in 69. Mm-hmm. Is there a song, Chris, from that period that you think is, I, I guess, representative of that, of that Bowie coming into his own? Um, I'd say one could be the, the Wild Eye Boy from Free Cloud. Solemn-faced Village settles down Undetected by the stars 
Hangman plays the mandolin Before he goes to sleep And the last thing on his mind Is the wild-eyed boy in prison Neath the covered wooden shaft Folds the rope into its bag Blows his pipe of smoulders Blanket smoke into the room And the day will end for some As the night begins for one Staring through the message in his eyes lies a solitary sun. This is Life Elsewhere. I'm Norman B. We're talking to Chris O'Leary, author of Rebel Rebel, the book of Bowie songs. Wild-eyed boy. You think that represents, and you suggest that represents that, that, that period, that period when Bowie was coming into his own in the uh, early 70s. That period, there was a lot of things going on in the music world at that time. But Bowie, it does seem, in retrospect, was was out on a limb in some respects. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, what he what he never felt much guilt about was authenticity, um, which was a big thing in in folk circles in some ways, but also in hard rock. Um, the idea of like you know bands had to be salt of the earth, you know bands, and he was very happy to be this sort of kind of fey figure, this sort of bizarre creature who no one could really pin down. Was he a light entertainer trying with with pretension? Sort of the accusations people leveled against Scott Walker when Scott Walker started making um, Stranger and Stranger records. He had Mick Ronson and he had the Spiders from Mars, so he had this incredibly crack band. But in the middle of that, he would do. Yeah, his some of the songs on Ziggy Stardust, the album, are not really hard rock songs. They are theater pieces. They're sort of um, if you did Ziggy Stardust the musical, these would be kind of the musical song. Mm. They're not like a a heavy metal driving. There are those songs on there, like Hang On to Yourself. But there's also stuff like Star. I want to be a rock and roll star. It's like a rock and roll ingenue number, like Bye Bye Birdie or something. So that there was always that side to him, which I he. We used to drive people crazy, I think, sometimes in the seventies, critics and and people like why why couldn't he commit to being a serious rocker? He, there's something suspect about him. And I think he, he got a he got a kick out of frustrating people's expectations. You know, what is so I think ironic and, 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 and truly amazing is that he did share the same birthday with Elvis and there's so many parallels in in, yeah. in a lot of respects with Elvis. For instance, Elvis annoyed a lot of people because he was able to sort of go from one genre to another so easily. The other thing that always struck me, and now in retrospect, is the voice. Elvis had this amazing range, and so did Bowie, particularly in his latter years. Can you talk about that? Again, as Bowie develops as a songwriter publicly, uh, he develops his voice publicly. Um, If you hear the 60s stuff, as we've talked about in past interviews, there's an Anthony Newley influence, and there's um, when he's doing like R&B, he's trying to do this kind of nasal transatlantic singing voice, which doesn't quite suit him. And so it takes a while for him 
to really develop kind of what his signature would be, which was his ability to kind of go from his chest voice to his head voice without blinking, these kind of huge octave jumps, and his trying to develop his falsetto, sometimes, you know, with, with difficulty, but sometimes quite stunningly. Where does Ziggy Stardust <laughs> sit in the, in, the, in the volume of, of David Bowie's work? It's interesting that even, if he, even as recently as, say, the mid-'90s or something, um, Ziggy Stardust was considered like his num- his big album, his number, his you know his equivalent of Sgt. Pepper or something, or Blonde on Blonde. And I think its its status has diminished a little bit. Um, I think it's lost a little bit of its uh, mystique because there has been sort of a critical reappreciation of other parts of his career, in particular the Berlin albums, which didn't at the time sell very well. They didn't have that many um, singles and. Uh, in some cases, were barely played in the radio. I'm thinking of America. I think in Britain there was always a single or two that made it, but things like Lodger and Low, um, they didn't really exist on, in America on, on conventional radio. Yes. So Ziggy Stardust used to, was kind of like his big image. I think for a certain generation, even for like you know mainstream media, people still think of him as as the Ziggy Stardust character, even though it was a character he played maybe two years. Yes. It's like defined him the rest of his life and it really it did frustrate him at times i think mm. you made mention of an album which i consider to be uh, one of my favorites of david bowie and that is low and as you said it didn't get the uh, quite the attention in the usa as it did certainly in the uk can you talk about low chris yeah low um which i think more and more is considered his his masterpiece by a lot of a lot of people um began as at a period of kind of creative drought for him. He was very exhausted and, and sick of music and was having all sorts of personal problems. He's very depressed at the time, he's admitted. And it began as sort of a way just to experiment with Brian Eno, who he had wanted to work with for a while. And it kind of came out of the Iggy Pop's Idiot album, which he basically used Iggy Pop as a guinea pig for production techniques and songwriting techniques. Um, and so, so Bowie starts out just having his band run through, in retrospect, some some pretty basic chord progressions and some melodies you kind of mix pretty openly from 60s songs. There's Yardbird stuff in there. There's um, I forget who did it, but here comes that rainy day feeling again. That mm-hmm. that melody is is totally nicked. And suddenly he kind of creates this concept of I'm going to do sort of a self-portrait in music of my current state, uh, hence low, uh, which is a joke, because Bowie always liked the jokes. The title, the cover image is a visual pun. It's Bowie's low profile. And the first half of the record is are these very, very short, but kind of crazy pop songs. They're very, you know, catchable, catchy and hummable. It's not like it's avant-garde music, really. But they're very, very short. They're almost like um, Eric Satie pieces. They're mm-hmm. a minute and a half and don't really end sometimes. They kind of just collapse or they get cut off. And the other side is him creating this kind of imaginary uh, Eastern Europe with these instrumental pieces, some of which he writes with, with Eno. Vasawa, uh, which is kind of a, a dream, dark Poland. And then Subterraneans and Weeping Wall, which are you know Berlin, East and West Berlin, where he was going to live very soon after he made the album. Again, these sort of portraits. Let's play a track from Lowe. Again, I'm going to put it to you, Chris. Your recommendation. 
Um, maybe sound and vision. David Bowie, Sound and Vision, from the album Low. We're talking to Chris O'Leary, the author of Rebel Rebel, the definitive book on David Bowie's songs. This is our tribute to the man that died sadly yesterday on January the 10th, 2016. We're trying to cram as much as we possibly can in here to try and remember David Bowie, Chris. Um... After Lowe, he goes into what I I guess we could generally describe as the MTV period. Let's talk about that. Part of it is driven by the fact that the, the Berlin quote-unquote trilogy didn't sell that well. Um, and he had a new contract. He was finally free of RCA, a label he would constantly was bitter about that didn't promote him very well. And he was finally free of an agreement that he had to share a certain percentage of his royalties with his ex-manager. That all ended in 82. And so very cannily, almost like the next day after that's expired, he goes into a studio with Niall Rogers from Cheek and makes some of the most accessible pop music of his, of his life. And it was designed to be a hit. He wanted a hit. He never really had hits um, in the way that the Beatles did or something. He had a number one single in the U.S. with fame, but that was sort of fluky. Even Ashes to Ashes was the number one in the U.S. in the U.K., but in America he still was kind of considered a, a cult figure, and he kind of didn't. He wanted to to establish himself commercially, and so Let's Dance is in a way an attempt to do that, but it's a typical Bowie way in that he took what was happening around him, which was that in eighty two, eighty three, the entire pop world is, seems to be filled with people in his image. Yes. Duran Duran and Flock of Seagulls and everyone. Yes. It's doing variations on Bowie. So how do you how do you swerve against that? And Bowie decides to kind of go back to the music of his youth and make this kind of neo R and B 
um, jazz. I mean, he's using he's not really using the synthesizers that much. It's a lot of horns. It's a lot of um, guitar solos, courtesy of Stevie Ray Vaughan, which is uh, featuring the kind of the huge gated snare drum sound of the studio, the, the power station, which is the kind of the classic '80s mega drum that sounds like a small cannon going off. Yes. Yes. The drummer hits the snare, and so with that, and these, and with Nile Rodgers' genius as an arranger, he makes you know by far the songs that I think the average person would know most. Let's dance, China Girl, Modern Love. David Bowie, and it sounds so strange to say this, the late David Bowie, Modern Love. We're talking to Chris O'Leary, author of Rebel Rebel, the definitive book on David Bowie's songs. There's so much to discuss, but I want to move forward, and I want to, I want to touch on um, and I, I, just where, where you, from, from your perspective, somebody that's written so much about David Bowie, where you saw him going, not just with Black Star, but, but with the latter parts of his career? Yeah, it's hard to say now because in part you wonder if um, the entire comeback from the next day, um, the now sadly ironically titled Next Day, um, through the play, Lazarus, and now especially Black Star, which is absolutely a record written by somebody who knows their time is running out, it, now, it, now as it seems. Um, if the whole thing had, was sort of a... One last gesture by him. Um, like possibly, maybe he would have stayed retired uh, if this hadn't happened. Maybe he was content just not making any more music, and suddenly he felt the need to kind of settle things and, and get some things kind of off his plate he always wanted to do, like the musical, and maybe doing a, a record with a more aggressive uh, avant-garde influence. Obviously, not an avant-garde record, which is Black Star, but a record that's a little that had some jazz. Sounds and is it ahead again? Some Scott Walker and Walker Brothers um, structures to the songs. Um, it kind of feels like him settling a few things, but also going out the way he wanted to. Do you, do you think, Chris, that that now looking at Black Star, um, and as you said, it it's, it seems like it was written deliberately. Do you think there's going to be such a lot of, uh, not even debates, but a lot of uh, dialogue about the fact that this was the man's tribute to I guess maybe to his his career that's saying look here's here's what I've done and thank you here's the final curtain is that going to be the discussion yeah it's interesting because it but it upends what everybody was saying which is like wow this is a bold direction I hope he keeps this up yeah making records like this in the future this is exciting yeah it, it was a, it was not received as a four last songs like uh, Strauss or something, it was received as like, wow, this is a pretty reinvigorated sounding guy doing yeah. adventure stuff for his age. Yeah. So I do hope that that reading is still out there as well. I hope it's not condemned to be Bowie's last album, Capital Letters, even though obviously he had that in mind when he was making it, I think. Last words, Chris. Um, the legacy, as we, as we say, I don't know if we can even right at this point um, capture it all in just a few words, but 
right now, Chris O'Leary, author of Rebel Rebel, I'd just like to hear you just sum up what you feel um, the the legacy means of David Bowie, just in, just in a couple of words. I think his legacy is one of, um, not escape, but transformation, who had a you know pretty supportive family from his father, and he didn't, you know, he could have done anything he kind of wanted. He was very a, a smart guy, and he could have been a writer. He could have been a made money in advertising, for example. And he chose to kind of constantly reinvent himself in ways. And but even in his lyrics and in his his public appearances, his entire intention, I think, was to serve as a kind of conduit for people's own desires to escape who they are to become something else. He basically. Um, showed, it, you know, it can be done. Look at me. Very well said. I, I, I can't thank you enough. I know this has been um, as um, difficult for you as, as it has been for me. We've been talking to Mr. Chris O'Leary, author of the definitive book on Bowie songs, Rebel, Rebel. Chris, thank you so very much for joining us at Life Elsewhere. Well, thanks for having me. It's a tough day, but uh, I'm glad we were able to do this. have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Associate producer is Camille Warden. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind the scenes assistance by George Fuller, James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. Send your request for the hit that never was to hit that never was at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. Life Elsewhere is produced at the studios of WMNF Tampa. Thank you.